0: Thank you so much. Oh man, thank you. We are blessed with some incredible worship uh, leaders here. Thank you so much for, for leading us into that. Um, good, good, good morning. Good morning, Norris. What's going on? How you doing? Good? Fine, thank you. Well, well, see, what a polite answer. Okay, I'm gonna start today by just reading some things. So sit back for the next five minutes and just listen. the echoes from our own ancient ancestral tradition hit it Brandon this text comes from North Africa third century Perpetua writes in her diary after a few days we were taken into prison I was much afraid because I had never known such darkness oh bitter day There was the great heat because of the claustrophobic conditions. And then there was the cruel treatment we received from the soldiers. Then, Tertius and Pompinius, those blessed deacons and brothers in Christ who ministered to us, they bribed the guards and obtained that for a few hours we should be taken to a better part of the prison and from there we could be refreshed. There, I nursed my newborn child who was faint with hunger. And after caring for him, I spoke to my mother, I strengthened my brother, I commended my son to them. My heart broke because I saw that they were heartbroken for me. Such emotional woe I suffered for many days. And then I obtained that my child could abide with me for one more night. And straight away I became well. And suddenly the prison, it became like a palace for me. So I would rather be there than anywhere else in the world. This text then moves on, tells the story several days later when Perpetua and Felicity and several other Christians were brought into the arena for their spectacle execution. And it says this, For Perpetua and Felicity's execution by animal, they prepared a mad heifer. This was an unusual and ferociously enraged animal. So they were stripped naked, placed in nets, and brought out to the arena. First, the heifer viciously tossed Perpetua on her back. As she got up, seeing that Felicity had been violently crushed to the ground by the beast, she went over to her. She gave her her hand, and she lifted her up, and the two stood there, side by side. Mid-2nd century, Roman Gaul, which is modern-day France, southern France, another story of a persecution, tells a tells us this. After all these, on the last day of the gladiatorial shows, Blandina, who in the eyes of the world was only a slave woman, was brought along with Ponticus, a boy of about 15 years of age. These two had been daily to the amphitheater, forced to watch the tortures which the rest of the brothers and sisters endured. They were trying to compel them to swear by the idols of the Roman polytheists. Eventually, they exposed them to every terror. They began to torture them, repeatedly trying to compel them to worship their deities. But the Roman magistrates, oh, they failed. They failed. For Ponticus, this young boy, he was encouraged by his sister, Blandina. Indeed, he was clearly comforted by her. Even the Romans saw how powerfully she encouraged and comforted him. And after nobly enduring every kind of torture imaginable, He gave up his spirit, while the blessed Blandina, a slave woman, before the eyes of the mad mob, having encouraged her children in the faith like a noble mother and having sent them on their way before her, victorious to the king, she now walked the same path of conflict, purring on to them with joy, with exaltation, not as one thrown to the beasts, but as one invited to a marriage feast. All right, next song, Brandon. Acts 2, 42 to 47, one of our texts for today. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to breaking of bread and to prayers. Awe came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods, and they would distribute all the proceeds to anyone that had need. And day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home, they ate food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having the goodwill of all the people, and daily the Lord was adding to their number those who were being saved. A mid-2nd century A.D. text called The Apology of Aristides talks about our early Christian ancestors. And it says this, When they see a stranger, they take him into their homes and they rejoice over him as if a brother. And whenever one of their poor passes away from the world, each of them, according to their ability, gives heed to that person and carefully sees to their burial. And if there's someone among them that is poor and needy, then the whole church will have a fast for two or three days, and with the money they didn't spend on food, they supply the needy person their lack of food. This last text I'll read comes to us from Dionysius of Alexandria, and he describes the Christian brothers and sisters during a devastating third century plague that that, uh, wreaked havoc in the empire. And here's how the Christians behaved. Here's how they rolled. Dionysius says, Most of our Christian siblings showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attended to the every need of those who were suffering, and ministered to them in Christ. And with them, they departed this life serenely happy. Why? Because they themselves were infected by the disease they were nursing drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many in nursing and curing others transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. The best of our brethren gave up their lives in this manner. Okay, I wrote a little sort of poetic thing too. So last song, here it is. This mosaic of quotes invites us to push the pause button on our forward-looking, goal-driven, moving-at-the-speed-of-light 21st-century ministry moment. These fascinating echoes from antiquity call us to reflect on a time-tested pillar of our sacred heritage as followers of Jesus and as bearers of God's great story. These texts showcase a phenomenon that is beautifully simple yet stubbornly enduring throughout the millennia. A prevailing good news proclaiming force that has always and everywhere accompanied the spirit-filled proclamation of true, full life in Christ. The foregoing tapestry of testimonials introduces us to the environment that our ancestors in the faith insisted insisted on protecting, on nurturing, and on celebrating. In our short time together, I pray that we can rediscover the wonder, the majesty, and the God-proclaiming miracle that is the authentic, life-giving community found in the local church. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to pray. Lord, thank you, God. Thank you for the fact that we can stand back And hear these voices speak to us, Lord, reaching through time and history to remind us of something you so desperately care about. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that the same Spirit, giving life and birth to communities in Acts... And in the churches throughout antiquity and late antiquity and the early Middle Ages and the late Middle Ages and the early modern era. And today, the same Holy Spirit is active, alive, and kicking in our right now. Thank you, God. It's fun to be able to talk about this and think about this. We love you, and, and we praise, praise this. Pray this as followers of Jesus. Amen. Okay, so, I've been, I've been as many of you know, I'm a, I'm a professor, and I do a lot of research. Uh, And right now I'm on research leave from my university, so I'm living in these second and third century texts. So i got to share a little bit, share a little bit of the love, uh, because it is a profound and oftentimes missed chapter of our history. We forget about these incredible stories of not just individuals, you'll notice, of these communities that together are showing God's goodness. Okay, I haven't been in a classroom for a while, so I'm going to turn this for a second into a classroom, and I need some help and participation, and I have pre-selected a few people. I want to introduce you to a, a, a character, I want to introduce you to a main character in the text of Acts, okay, some, a main character that is all throughout, and I'm going to show you very briefly how all throughout and pervasive this character is, and then we're going to talk a little, once we see how important this character is, then we'll talk about one sort of snapshot uh, sort of qualitative look at this character. Sound good? Yay! It sounds wonderful. I'm so excited to be here. Woo! And then I'm going to talk about chocolate. Oh, yes. The answer to that is yes, all of the above. Okay. All right, my first, uh, so in Acts, there's a, I have about 25 verses. I'm not going to even try to read all of those. I'm, I just pick six. I'm going I'm to have six uh, folks read. Well, five folks read, and then I'm going to read the last one. But um, text and Acts, you can try to follow along, along if you want or just sit back and listen. Remember, our ancestors in the faith, most of them heard the scriptures. Very few of them read them. They heard them. Most people were not literate, preliterate society for the most part. Okay, uh, I think, who do I have on 542? 542, who's on this? Is that you, Lauren? Yes. All right, Acts 542, check this out. Okay, very interesting. So we're meeting a character. All right, uh, I think 931, I think, Kathleen, is that you? All right, go ahead, Kathleen. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and in the, fear of the Lord, and of the Holy Spirit, and Okay, beautiful. All right, Dave has a long one, so I asked him to read it beforehand and just summarize what happens in Acts 13, 1 through 3. What's the gist of it? Okay, beautiful. This is the first missionary journey. This is the first time that the gospel is moving outside of sort of the, the, the more Jewish Eastern Mediterranean and moving into these other areas of Asia Minor and Cyprus and other places. And look how it starts. It actually starts, it's launched. The sort of the I'm trying to think of another, the fermentation. the hopper is community. That launches it out. That launches it out. Beautiful stuff. Okay. Uh, Bill. I got Bill McPhee. We got ourselves one. Bill McPhee to read 1625. This is in Roman Philippi. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. They had just been publicly flogged. Flogging sounds fun. It sounds like something you do at Christmas. Hey, let's go flogging. Yay! Right? Flogging was the most unfun thing you could possibly endure. It was being beaten mercilessly in front of a bunch of people. And Paul and Silas were beaten mercifully in front of a bunch of people, thrown into a Roman jail, which is like there's no cable, there's no good meals, it's, it's a pit. And around midnight, they're singing and worshiping together. Oh, that's Beautiful. All right, Jazz uh, 21. We're, see, I just want you to see, I am taking samples from every sort of slice of Acts. Now we're kind of towards the end of the narrative. Acts 21, 4 through 6, Jazz is going to read for us. Beautiful. I mean, it is truly remarkable. At each stage of the journey, in Acts twenty-eight, the very last chapter of the story, we see Paul finally showing up in Rome. He's never been to Rome. He's in Italy. He's never been there before. And as soon and, and as soon as he gets there, he presumably knows he knows some people in the Christian network there, but he may have face to face, not even met a lot of them. He shows up, and it shows how folks are just, like, making their way from all these different places to get to him, to be with him, to encourage him. And I didn't even mention, like, Acts 20, where he's on this beach. There's a lot of beach scenes. I told the beach community this morning, we're like, hey, this is kind of where a lot of ministry happens, right, on the beach. Acts 20, the Ephesian elders meet together with Paul. It's this great scene of them praying together, crying together, and worshiping. And then, like, the scene pans out, right? Luke kind of pans the scene out, and you can just see this this picture of the kingdom of God operating in these communities. This isn't to mention like Acts 15, the first ever church council happens. Why? What, was, what drew together people? How do we figure out how to get people of different ethnicities that have previously lived separately and even in hostile conditions against one another, how do we get them to sit down in Christ and enjoy a meal together? Right? This is the primary concern. It's all throughout. I mean, we talked about last week, the, the chapter 1, chapter 2, when we think about the group waiting for the Spirit to come. They're just together waiting. And in Acts 2, the text ends with one of our focuses in, um, that I read with some music attached to it. But Acts 2, 42 to 47, so... Uh, last week, we talked about the Pentecost, about the coming of the Holy Spirit in a dramatic way. Salvation history, stuff that had been written about in the Hebrew Bible and prophets had been speaking of for millennia, have, have suddenly been happening in, the, in, in real time with those who were followers of Jesus. And how does that incredible, miraculous story end? It ends with this summary that they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking their bread, prayer, day by day, hanging out, encouraging one another, taking care of needs. So this is a character, if we ask, like, who, if we ask who is the main character of Acts, the whole narrative, who is the main character of it? Um, I'd probably say the Holy Spirit. That's the main character. You will see the Holy Spirit of God move. It's, it's actually later in church history that the text is titled the Acts of the Apostles, but it probably should have been better at titled The Acts of the Holy Spirit, because as you will see, it's constantly, Todd talked about that push, we'll be talking a little bit about today as well, the push of the Holy Spirit, he's kind of always nudging, like, let's go over here, let's do this, the action is moving because of the Holy Spirit, but I would argue the second major character of Acts is actually the community, it's communities, and we typically think of sort of like movie star, um, spotlight on one person kind of, uh, uh, we have that sort of media culture at least, and so we like to look at Paul or Peter or Barnabas, these individuals like Philip that are so awesome, and they are pretty awesome, but I think eclipsing even their stature in this text is the community itself. So I just want you to see very basically, this isn't like a sophisticated argument I'm making here, I just want you to see it's all over the place, and be looking for it as you read through or listen to the text during the week, be looking for the community to show up a bunch. What I do want to now. Oh, by the way, you have a, a handout with some um, fill, like not fillings, but with some things. It, it's basically useless. I totally changed my message yesterday, so enjoy it. I mean, it's a good idea. The sermon might have been interesting like that, but I did some diff- different stuff. Okay. I want to focus in today on Acts four thirty-two to 37. That's kind of the main spot now. That, we've done a flyover. we kind of gotten a hot air balloon and, and have seen the landscape of Acts and noticed, oh, there's community. Oh, there it is too. Oh my gosh, there's another one. I didn't realize how much community there was in here. Now I want to sort of get out of the hot air balloon, preferably by a safe landing, step out of it, and look at one passage. Okay, one in particular. It's Acts 4, Acts chapter 4. Fia auf Deutsch. I was in Switzerland for a while, so I haven't trying to speak a little German. Okay. Apostle Geschichte Fia. Acts 4. Here it goes. Acts 4, 32. And, I, and I'm going to get a little, I'm gonna, as they say, I'm going to geek out a little bit on one thing here and it will bring some Greek in, okay? So be ready for it. I think it's important. Verse 32 of Acts 4. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Unity, right? Good stuff. And not one of them claimed anything belonging to them was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. Pause real quick. What I want you to see, this isn't some like sort of weird Bolshevik or Maoist China uh, communism that, that you get into this community, and you, you cash all your stuff in, it's no longer yours, you have no say. This is not what we have a picture Actually, what Actually, the picture we're given here, the economic picture... I'm excited about saying that. The economic picture is actually a family sharing in, in the Mediterranean world. It's, it's family sharing. For example, my parents are here, mom and dad, wave your hands. They surprised me today. I'm in the lobby, and they're like, whoa, mom and dad. So when, when we go out to lunch, typically, as we might today, uh, you go out to lunch... My dad, you know, you order food. Let's say you go to Bucca de Beppo. You're at the Pope table, right? You get that Lazy Susan, and there's, like, the pizza, and the garlic is just, garlic falls from the heavens there. There's just tons of it everywhere. You're going to smell like it after Bucca de Beppo. And you get some pasta. At the end of the meal, let's say my siblings are all there, and and my dad doesn't stand up and go, okay, you guys, all right, the bill's here. Let's see. um, James, you had three ravioli and, like, two pieces of pizza. Dude, easy on the carbs, man. And uh, let's see, uh, you know, Mark hardly ate anything, so he okay, so James, you owe 2235, 35 uh, could Venmo me later. And Mark, you owe 10 bucks, you know. That's that that is not family sharing. That's like a dysfunctional family sharing. What what really happens at a meal? Here's what happens the bill comes, and I do a fake, like, oh, I'll get it. I kinda I kinda ease into it, like, I'll get it. All right, I'll get it. No, I got dad grabs it. But I fake. I do a real genuine, like, I'm, I'm really going to do it. Where's my wallet at? I can't, I'm going to go to the bathroom. I'll be back. Don't you pay. Right? No. My dad, my dad picks up why it's family sharing. Right? When I buy my, buy my daughter a, a, a wig for her Halloween costume she's been working on for like a year. When I buy her that, I'm not like, okay, well, I'm going to, you know, out of your inheritance one day, I'm going to take that. $10 out and make sure it's like, no, it's family sharing, I'm investing, we're sharing together. So that's the picture you have here. It's a group acting like a family. Okay, so it's, it, that's what we see here. Now, here's what I want you to notice. This family sharing is going on. Verse 33, and with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Their proclamation of a risen Messiah, of the fact that Jesus died for our corruption, rebellion, sin, hurts, darkness, and God raised him from the dead, just thus showing that God's fingerprints are all over this, that this is God's giant redemptive act in history, that proclamation is coming out with great power. Whoa. Okay, that's interesting. And then, it says, abundant grace was upon them all. Now, there is a, a Greek post-positive causal conjunction I'd like to draw your attention to. There's a term... Gar, everyone say gar. Gar, come on now, like a pirate. Gar, gar. Okay, gar, what does gar mean? Gamma, alpha, rho. Gar, what does it mean? It just means, it means therefore, or or, or because, or for. So this little conjunction, what it's going to do is it's going to tell you this. It's going to say, everything I'm about to say is the reason for what I just said. So, for example, if I said, uh, man, the Norris service was amazing today. Gar, Brad and the team brought the worship so beautifully and you could see their hearts. So if I say, the service was so amazing today because for Brad and the team were bringing worship. That's what that gar does. Does that make sense? It says, what I just said, there's a reason for it, and here's that reason. Now, I only bring this to your attention because sometimes it's actually missed. Most translations are awesome. Even good translations though, there's a few of them that actually miss this causal conjunction. I can't figure out why, I really can't. It baffles me a little bit. But we take 33, the power of the proclamation, verse 33, the powerful proclamation. Jesus is alive. And people are like, whoa. And verse 34, gar for there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them, bring the proceeds of the sales, lay it at the apostles' feet, and they'd be distributed to each as they had need. For some reason, in even translations and even in my thought for many, many years, I had sort of put those two things as separate categories. The gospel was being proclaimed powerfully by the apostles, probably because of the miracles, probably because they're good at their rhetoric, probably because... They're, I don't know. They're all so passionate. I don't know what it is, but we know that great grace is upon everyone. The gospel's going forth. Oh, yeah. Hey, something else cool happens. There was not an needy person among the community. But actually, what Luke, the author of Acts, is calling us to notice is these two things are intimately and integrally connected. They need to go together. One is the reason for the other, at least in this case. So, what does that mean? It means the quality of Or the power of the proclamation, the power of our sharing good news to folks in our communities and saying there is a bigger purpose for living. There is hope in your life. Jesus is alive. The power from that, in part, should be coming from the fact that you can also grab someone by the arm and bring them to a community and show them Jesus. The power of the proclamation is connected to the quality of the community in this passage. That's what Luke is saying. Why, indeed, was the apostles' message so, like, hair-raisingly captivating? And people were going, that's plausible. That's actually, there's truth in this. Why? Because then you could come and see these little Christians, little Christies, Christians as they were called, Acts 11. You can come and see them and go, where are your poor and destitute? And by poor, by the way, in in the ancient context, I'm not talking about, like, oh, man, I'm not going to be able to get yellow vase this week because... You know, I don't go to Yellow Face myself. I don't know why I brought that illustration up. But I'm not going to be able to get Mendocito Farms this week. I'm poor. Okay? No, poor in ancient context is you literally die in the street. People act, you actually go down the street and you see people dying. This is destitute poor. Right? This is what we're talking about. You didn't see that in the early Christian context here. And people were asking, why? What's the deal with this? The community was so healthy. So healthy that the gospel proclamation was even more like plausible and believable. Um, why is this important for us? I, I think a couple things. First of all, Todd had me amening a bunch last week. I think at the Norris I got tired. At the beach I was really up, up in, in arms of amens. But, but uh, I was really stoked on his message because he ended with kind of a, a heart. I told him between services, I go, Todd, forget everything else. Just do that at the end. That would be enough in your sermon. It was so good. He just said, "If you, why are we here? Why do we exist if you come to this church because you want worship just the way you like it, and you want us to sort of theologically contort to exactly what you want, if that's why you're here, then maybe this is not the great place for you. Because our primary objective here is to bring hope and life to our community, is to bring love and care to, yeah, it's like, amen, Todd, yeah. So he said it like this, we do not exist for those in the building, we exist for those not yet in the building, right? Now, yeah, it's like, yeah, amen, right? I'm all, yeah. Todd's amening his own message. Good job, Todd. <laughs> so, so why is it? So what about this then? So should we ignore community? Is that what it means? We don't care. Hey, if you've got a problem with me, I don't, you know, forget about it. We don't have time for that. We've got to get out and bring the word. No, actually, it's ironically the exact opposite. The reason we insist on nurturing authentic relationships here from top to bottom i'm not to, i'm top to we're not like a hierarchy but you know from pastoral staff on down to folks first week here we really want to live with relational integrity we're not perfect bills practically perfect Todd, yeah, you and I, we know we're not near. But the fact is we're not perfect at it, but we insist on it. Why? Because if we can't grab people by the arm and bring them in and say, I want you to see what it looks like to live under the influence of the Holy Spirit in community. If we can't do that, then we have we have nothing to really bring people. We're, we're inauthentic. We don't have a product to show them. Okay, I want to say so much more, but I'll restrain myself. I want to now give an illustration and then, then kind of run this, two illustrations and then run it through my life real quick about community and acts. Um, first of all, I just got back from Switzerland like a week and a half ago. Oh, Switzerland. My goodness. The place is incredible. I'm not lying to you. I want to run, and I'm listening to like the new Hillsong album, Wonder, and the sun's coming up, and everyone I know is asleep because you're all over here sleeping, lazy people while well, I'm awake in Switzerland, this time change thing, and, and you crest this hill, you look at Lake Zurich, and the Alps in the distance, and you literally, and I'm not kidding, you actually smell chocolate, it's like Willy Wonka's chocolate factory in there, man, you smell it, there's a chocolate factory in every major city, they, or every city has their own little chocolate factory, okay, I'm smelling chocolate, so I came back with some Swiss chocolate, would you like some Swiss chocolate, come on now, come here, ready, I'm going to do this, I'm going I'm to throw one like this. I'm gonna warn you, I'm gonna scatter some into the crowd, okay? So everyone, if you've fallen asleep, God bless you. I hope you enjoyed the nap. That's what I'm good for. I'm gonna throw it up, okay? Ready? Here we go. This is Swiss chocolate coming at you. Ready? Everyone, don't want anyone getting hit in the eye and suing me. Okay, thank you. Oh! Look, oh, sorry, sorry, that was any baby, yeah, are there any babies? I should really ask that first. You know, pelt a baby. Right here, I'm gonna get Liz, you get a special one right there. Here we go. One more over here. Here we go. Swiss chocolate. Coming at you. Hope you're ready for it. I'm doing it easy, nice and easy. Woo! Oh sorry it's like okay that's the last time I'll do that for a while. Now we have t-shirt cannon. Who wants one? No. I right, Swiss chocolate. Sometimes in we as a, as, as a church just church culture in general. I've been in ministry about 18 and a half years, been in church staffs during that time, a lot of different church staffs and and I and I'm connected to a lot of church networks and stuff. That we do kind of have a thing as contemporary western Christians For numbers, we get really excited about numbers, like numerical or measurable growth is really important. It's important in business. It's important in other areas. But for us, we sometimes we get really excited and obsessed almost with numbers and numeric quantity. And so we can define things as being healthy and God's moving and God's doing something based on the fact that it's just more bodies are there and more tweets and more retweets and more followers and just numbers are going up, right? That's my observation. That typically is one of our things. I feel it in my own heart. On a day when like the noise is bustling and I see Brad bringing in more chairs, I'm like, oh man, this is so awesome. Like God's doing something. Well, maybe God's doing something, maybe not. I don't know. But there are more bodies in the room, so I'm more excited as a pastor. That's typically something we focus on, right? And sometimes we can get so focused on quantity and multiplication That the quality piece is like kind of secondary, maybe tertiary. Maybe we don't even get to it. I have that Swiss chocolate I threw out to you. I also went to the Dollar Tree, and I looked for the cheapest and most abundant candy. This is a YooHoo candy mini bars. This is made of like asbestos and sadness somewhere in Bakersfield, probably. Just sad. Sorry if you're from Bakersfield. For many reasons, I'm sorry. I'm kidding. Okay, so... you candy mini bars. I could fill up trash bags with this for a fraction of the price of these, at least stateside. I really could. I could fill up so many trash bags of this and probably hope that they'd stay in that trash bag because these things will send you at least to purgatory. I don't know. Maybe worse. But, but I'm not even going to open the bag. It's going right... No, I might open it later. But the point I'm trying to say, in Switzerland... The cows have like a Burke Williams. Like the cows, I get a little massages, little facial. Someone's reading poetry to the cows. Oh, how thy milk shall grow and flourish!" The cows have a better pension plan than I do over there. I mean, they are just killing it. They care so much and you, and this is a funny cultural observation. They actually, I've seen verbal jousts among the, the Swiss students I was teaching about whose canton, or little state, has better chocolate, because each one has their own chocolate, and they compete with each other. Like, they're really passionate about it. So they are not going to compromise on quality for a nanosecond. They will, they will focus on, quali- on quality. And that's why when you put that thing in your mouth, it's like you're transported to the third heaven of goodness, right? And when you put this in your mouth, it has a half-life of 12,000 years, probably before it's actually out of the system. Like, the, because quantity is nice, and I could fill up buckets of this stuff. But if it tastes like this stuff tastes like, I would imagine, who wants the buckets? What's the point? The early church, our ancestors in the faith, were a, a, a far and away a minority movement. Even though we talk about, like, and, and 3,000 were added to their number that day. Number-wise, we're literally talking about point. of the Roman population. Some estimate 0.01% by the end of the first century. That means for every Christian, there are 10,000 people in the empire that are not. So you didn't walk around feeling like the moral majority or like some sort of a powerful political force. You were not, you didn't have the numbers. You really couldn't get that excited about growth because you really didn't have the numbers. But what were they insisting on? The quality. We will not compromise on following the Holy Spirit and living out authentically our relationships with one another. Last thing. The push. Todd talked about it, and I've been uh, talking a lot about that. The push of the Holy Spirit. We've been talking about sometimes we need that nudge or that push. and, And I've been asking myself, and Bray and I have been, uh, and, and I've been asking all y'all whenever I'm emceeing, like, where do you see the Spirit pushing you or nudging you in this season for something big or something new and fresh that God's doing in your lives? The push, the jump, what is it? I went cliff jumping for the first time on the Colorado River, and I decided to start big. I went from literally like a little diving, diving board, like four-foot diving board, to a 60-foot cliff. That was kind of my jump Uh, as a cliff jumper. So I went to the 60 foot cliff and I'm up there. I'm looking down at the Colorado River and Todd's in the boat down there. Todd, why weren't you up there? I don't know. I'm looking at the, the water. And the longer you look at the water, the longer you spend time focusing on it, the less likely you are to jump. I'm not kidding you, there was a dude up there. This guy was like buff and whatever, buff. And this guy like, he sat there for an hour looking at it, before doing the walk of shame on down. Like, the longer he looked, and I'm up there, and now it's my turn, and I'm like, you're in line, you're up there, I'm like, okay, here we go. And I'm up there, and I'm like, oh, man, what am I doing? I start, I'm getting older, I'm starting to think about my back, and getting out of bed in the morning is already hard. Putting your socks on is almost a miracle these days, you know? Like, <laughs> let alone what I'm going to do to myself, jumping. And I'm like, going to die, and think, I, had, I had Theo Windorf and Matt McFarland next to me, right? And I go, I, I'm a, the most manly thing I could think to do. Guys, can we hold hands? (laughs) So I hold their hands, and I go, let's jump together. Let's do it together. You know, more for me than for them. They they do flips and stuff. I'm like, let's jump together. On three, right? And one, do we jump on three, or do we jump after three? We cleared that up, and then we jumped together, right? We got in the water. We went for it together. We let go, because we don't want to pull someone down or die. But we jumped together into the water. It was one the most exhilarating things. I'm not recommending it. You'll probably break your back. But it was amazing. As we stand on the precipice, Bray and I, and I'm just sort of vulnerably sharing it here, as we stand on the precipice of the big push, we know what God's been up to in our lives. It's been kind of clear for a while. He's doing a lot of things. But one thing we know, for years now, he's been breaking our hearts for fatherless kids, for kids that are neglected and abused and thrown to the trash by our society. And our hearts have been breaking for that. And so a couple years ago, we started the process of like, becoming certified for foster parents and connecting with people. And, and here we are at the end of that process of certification. And we're like standing on the edge of, of this thing that we're jumping into. And it's so easy to look down at the 60 feet and hear the sound bites, right, of like everything you've heard, like well-meaning people telling, oh, you know, my aunt, she, you know, she, she adopted. You know, the, the kid ate the chihuahua. He ate their chihuahua. You know, there were, like stories of like horrible things. Wow, that's gonna be hard. And we're like, really? We thought it would be so easy to uh, foster a kid. That I thought the easiest thing in the world. Or, you know, just you hear that stuff. Or, or you you know, you go on Zillow or Westside Rentals thinking about that extra bedroom that you're going to need. And, like, I'm going to have to donate a kidney to get this on the black market. Like, it's so crazy. Or you just think about the future and, oh, what could go wrong? What could happen? And you know the most beautiful thing, and I'm not just saying this because you're here. Every single Sunday, without exception, when I get together and sometimes through the week with different groups of you, when I am in your presence, do you know what happens to me every single time in same Assembly? We are refocused on God's beating heart for these kids. We are refocused and inspired. Why? Because all of a sudden, we look to our right and we look to our left and we see you standing there with us arm in arm. And so many of you come and go, how's the process going? What's happening? How are you doing? Can I pray for you? And I hear this from you so much. Oh, God's gonna do something amazing. God's got you. I'm like, we are Brixton, Michelle, Bray, me. We are not jumping alone. We are together. So, like, just for me, I just kind of want to end my message. I do this when I surf with Michelle. I go out and I'll, I'll hold her by the face sometimes. I'll go, Michelle, do you know how much I love you? Do you know how much I'm thankful for you? Like, I just said, she's like, yeah, Dad, I know. I love you too. Right? But I, I just, I just want to hold the River Church by the face and just say in my local community, here, I want to say thank you so much and do you know how valuable you are? And this is just my ministry, not to mention the millions of ministries God's doing throughout this world and in this church. Thank you. So we're ending with communion and I asked Brad for a specific, very specific song to, uh, to, to do for us as we as we move to communion. And it's actually, it's a, it's actually a Mumford and Sons song, one of my favorite Mumford and Sons songs. And the chorus, it's not like, I don't know, it's a Chris, not Christian, it's Christian-y, I guess, but it's not like a Christian song, but but the, the chorus goes like this. You are not alone in this. You are not alone in this. As brothers, we'll stand and we'll hold your hands. And so for whatever your push, whatever your jump, whatever God is calling you to, I just want to say, like, You are not, nor should you ever be alone in this. We are doing this together. So when the music plays, come on up. The the bread representing the body of Christ broken for us and the grape juice representing the blood of Christ poured out that we might be one with God and one with one another. So let's let's, uh, worship.